Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us. Is your wardrobe in need of a refresh for spring? Maybe you'll find what you're looking for in a thrift store. Minnesota has thousands of secondhand stores, from for-profit businesses to those tied to charities, all possible treasure troves for the determined thrifter. But the history of this popular pastime is more complicated than you might think. Today, I'm revisiting a conversation about the past, present, and future of thrifting. I talked with Jennifer Lazat. She wrote the book From Goodwill to Grunge and teaches at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. I also spoke with Molly King, the marketing manager of ARC's Value Village stores. There are three ARC Value Villages around the Twin Cities metro area in Richfield, Bloomington, and New Hope. And full disclosure, ARC is an NPR sponsor. To start off the conversation about thrifting, I asked Jennifer how she first got into thrift stores. I grew up in a very small southern town without a broad array of firsthand shopping options. And um, in the late 1980s, my older punk sister introduced me to the local, usually run by religious organization, thrift stores. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of picked up the habit as a way to personally express myself. Gotta love those older punk siblings. (laughs) How would you describe the allure of, of thrifting? Uh, I think, and and my research bears this out, that especially for many uh, younger generations, right? So when we discover thrifting, a lot of times it's when we're teenagers or a little bit older, and it's when we're exploring potential identities for ourselves. And I think one of the major values, expressive values of shopping secondhand is you get a broader array than you can find in any one store that only represents current fashions or current styles and, you know, certain sub sets, right? Like you're not going to find something um, punk at, uh, you know, uh, L.L. Bean, but you can find, you know, a whole cross genre of possibilities to be remade for yourself at Goodwill or ARC. And Molly, what about you? What do you think draws uh, people to thrift stores? Um, I like Jennifer's description of the array, uh, you know, L.L. Bean to punk. Um, It's it's the it's the wide variety. It's also the great prices. And like you mentioned, the thrill of the hunt. It's mm-hmm. the treasure hunt. And everyone leaves feeling lucky, which is a really fun feeling. But do we always all leave feeling lucky? Because sometimes <laughs> I, I feel like I didn't, you know, I didn't score that deal I was hoping to find. Uh, it, it, there's a strategy that goes into it. There is a strategy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think every thrifter has their own way of how they navigate <laughs> the store. Um, and I think resellers have their list of what of what they're hoping to find. And then uh, people just there for the thrill of the hunt. Um, mm-hmm. They're looking for a treasure, but they're also, you know, keep your heart open and uh, you never know what you'll find. But when you find it, you'll be so you'll be so delighted. It's something that you never knew you wanted. But um, there it is. <laughs> I hear lots of those stories. And Molly, how did you get into uh, interested in, in thrifting? Yeah, so I've always been a donor to the um, local thrift stop. And then I got into the shopping when I actually started this job about six years ago and haven't looked back. It's a lot of fun. Now, I'm curious, too, about possibly the, the stigma around buying and wearing secondhand stuff. Uh, and and Ma- Jennifer, what can you, you say about that? Is there a stigma around thrift shops? Yes, and there there long has been, and it changes and varies uh, depending on 
place and time. But in the United States, much of that stigma dates back to the 19th century. And some of it has to do with uh, plain old fashioned racism, in this case, anti-Semitism, because secondhand dealers were most commonly associated with Jewish populations. Uh, push cart sellers in this country um, were predominantly Jewish, a tradition that continued from diasporic uh, Jewish populations in Europe where, as here, they were limited in the professional jobs that they could pursue and tended to branch out into careers that had to do with clothing, be it tailoring or once the garment industry takes root in New York City, that as well. And pushcart sellers were no exception. Around that same time in the late 19th century, the germ theory really took root in America where um, general population started to understand the way that disease traveled but sometimes also misunderstand it. And so there was fear of communicable diseases um, being, you know, you know, mm -hmm. uh, passed along via used clothing. Mm. And uh, Jennifer, I want to stop you there because uh, I want to share actually a, a song with our listeners. Uh, we've established that you've written a book about the history of thr thrifting. And then we know that there's a rich history of thrifting showing up in popular culture. And so there's mm -hmm. this song called Secondhand Rose, which was one of the first. And we're going to play the song. It's a version we're going to play that was recorded by Barbara Streisand for the movie Funny Girl, in which she portrays Fanny Bryce. And we're play playing this version of the song because it's really much easier to, to understand and hear on the radio. And I'm really eager to hear more about the story of this song and the history of thrifting. But first, let's listen to some secondhand rows. Father has a business, strictly secondhand. Everything from toothpicks to a baby grand Stuff in our apartment came from father's store Even clothes I'm wearing someone wore before It's no wonder that I feel abused I never get a thing that ain't been used I'm wearing second-hand hats <laughs> Second-hand clothes That's why they call me Second-hand rose! <laughs> I get it! I love this! So, uh, Jennifer, uh, you're a, a history professor. Uh, tell us more about this song and how it's attached to the history of thrifting. Well, I really feel like it marks a transitional point uh, out of the broader stigmatization of it. Not totally, because you can hear from these lyrics, right? She's still bemoaning the fact that she has to buy secondhand. She would certainly rather be able to, you know, peruse Bloomingdale's, well, not, not yet in the 1920s, but <laughs> peruse um, the major department stores in New York City. But it's also drawing on the association with secondhand with Jewishness. Uh, Fanny Bryce was very much her original, her, her uh, given name was Fanny Borak, and she changed it to Bryce to Anglicize. She performed as a showgirl. She played up her Jewishness um, with, you know, accents. And when she performed this a lot of times on stage, she used a kind of uh, Jewish accented, you know, emphasis. This is a Jewish trope, right? Buying secondhand, having a father in the business. But 
it is not nearly as horrifying to imagine her. She goes to the Ritz wearing a secondhand coat. She's being kind of kicky and modern about it. And definitely in the 1920s, you see modernism in music, in art with surrealism, um, finding value, creative value in secondhand kind of artistic uh, panache, right? Partly utilizing that stigmatization to it's the first time you really see it as a rebellious kind of, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, use of secondhand saying, you know, older, old fashioned people may see this as, you know, shocking and disreputable to buy things from here. But I find it inspiring. Uh, Andre Breton, the father of surrealism, writes a long thing about how shopping at flea markets just opens up your creative, uh, you know, um, boundaries. So you start to see in the 1920s modernism um, validating the creative voluntary use of secondhand shopping. And I know that there's a, a story, a newspaper article that was in the Saturday Evening Post um, from 1802 that talks about secondhand clothes and and Jewish people and, and germs. Can you tell us that story about that story? Yeah, I, I think it's actually 1892. It's the near the end of the 19th. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so a young girl really wants to go to a dance, a ball, and her father says, no, you can't afford a new dress. So she says she sneaks off to go to a secondhand shop. And the author of the story very much emphasizes that it's ran by the, you know, sort of unattractive Jewish proprietress behind there, right? And so she buys this dress. She's very happy with it. She goes to the ball, but it's recognized as, you know, some of one of her classmates' dresses. So that's scandalous. And then finally, the worst part is she managed via the dress to take home, I think it was yellow fever, some horrible plague that decimates her household and leaves her disfigured but remorseful. So like many 19th century Victorian stories, you know, it's a rebirth. She comes to realize the value of character over high dressing. But in the meanwhile, she, you know, kills half her family. <laughs> it's pretty dark. Is that a a true story? Do we know? Um, oh, but, no. But no, it's, it's I not. Mean, it, 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 it's not a true story. This is a fictional account. Um, that isn't to say that germs couldn't spread through secondhand clothing. And when Salvation Army and Goodwill begin to publicize their standalone stores that are, you know, connected to charitable outlets, they also emphasize the, for example, this is from a Salvation Army pamphlet early in the 20th century. They're large constantly going washing machines, sanitizing the objects for sale, right? Mm -hmm. So they revise this to take away that stigma and, and stereotype. And you mentioned the push carts. Those push carts ev eventually became flea markets. To a great degree, yeah. So the one thing I love about secondhand commerce in general is it's fluidity, it's flexibility, it's very adaptable, right? It kind of goes in and out of various spaces. So as uh, urban populations began to grow, and also as people began to organize against Jewish populations to some degree, so anti-Semitism is still at play here, more and more laws against peripatetic salespeople, push carts, right? Wandering the streets and calling out, they call it noise pollution, all kinds of things. So restrictions start to appear. At the same time, as part of the City Beautiful movement, a lot of cities built these beautiful big public marketplaces that had trouble filling their stalls as places like A&P chain grocery stores 
took over, right? So people growing crops, growing food and bringing it in, would just sell them to A&P and the public markets weren't as filled. So those secondhand sellers began to populate those market stalls and sort of flow into those abandoned spaces, creating what we now know of as flea markets. We're talking about thrifting. We have Jennifer Lazat on the line, an assistant professor of history at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, as well as Molly King, the marketing manager of Arcs Value Village, which has three locations here in the metro area. In St. Mary's Point, let's bring in one of our listeners. This is Joshua on the phone. Hi, Joshua. Hi. Uh, good program. Yeah, I started thrift store shopping um, as a punk rock kid in the 80s in Minneapolis, <laughs> like a lot of people did. And it really stuck with me. I find that a lot of times it's a habit people acquire early on. And it was kind of of necessity. You couldn't really find the kind of clothes that I was looking for unless you were thrift store shopping. And uh, it stuck with me. I still do it today. I've done it with professional clothes and just for fun clothes. It's really fun to just go look through all the things and sometimes just get a good laugh out of some of the pieces. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I would go with friends. I we went, we went with raising kids, too, so they're used to it. And uh, one of the friends I used to, you know, probe through the bins at Ragstock's big warehouse down on Washington Avenue in the 80s owns her own thrift store. So That's cool. <laughs> it, 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 can really, it can really hang with you. And, you know, in the Twin Cities, you've got some real, really well-curated collections mm-hmm. where they have specific kind of vintage focuses and our very traditional base, like Lula and St. Paul, uh, Rewind right. over on over Northeast is really good yeah. that way. And Corner Store is kind of the old stalwart over in the Uptown neighborhood. Thank you. That's Joshua in St. Mary's Point. Let's go to Minnetonka now, where Melanie is on the phone. Good morning, Melanie. What do you want to tell us about thrifting? Good morning. Um, so my daughter decided to go to prom about a week or two before the event in May. And we went to about four department stores and found nothing because of the pandemic. And also they were just slim picking because it was so close to prom season. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the last store, when we were about to give up hope, the the person that worked there at Von Mar said, I just heard a commercial about Arctic Value Village that they had a whole bunch of prom dresses there. <laughs> and they were closing within an hour. So we drove straight there and the first dress she saw she tried on and it was her cinderella moment oh. <laughs> it's like a pale blue dress with a satin sash and it fit her perfectly she's five foot two and i oh. i don't know how to sew and so it was just the perfect dress for her yes and a a a thrifting fan was born in that moment i'm sure that's a wonderful story that's melanie and minnetonka and molly king there at arcs value village uh do you see a lot of younger shoppers coming in to thrift Yes, we do see a lot of younger shoppers, and they know the value of the thrift store. Um, I love <laughs> Melanie's um, Cinderella moment. We had a really generous donation from Project Prom this year, and that uh, we got about a thousand dresses, and we oh made my. thousands of dreams come true this spring, which is really fun. And so, these younger shoppers, uh, in your interactions with them, what do they say? I mean, do do they not have the the, the same stigma? that some older folks may have when it comes to secondhand or, or used clothing? 
Yeah, it's not even that there's not a stigma. It's that you actually get street cred and currency for shopping. <laughs> it's street like the, cred. You like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like the Minnesota thing where we like to brag how much we didn't spend. Right. With the younger generation, <laughs> <laughs> the, the younger generation likes to um, sort of boast about how Yes, I got it secondhand and, um, you know, it's not fast fashion, it's not, um, or it is eco-friendly and it's supporting, you know, a good mission. It's all these really good heartfelt reasons that the younger generation understands. And they also like the variety, you know, it's, um, you're going to get all the generations, every decade of clothing in one store and all sizes, colors, shapes, um, something for everyone. So the, the younger generation really loves those aspects. And Molly, you used the words fast fashion. Tell, tell us more about what that means. What's an example of fast fashion? Yeah, so fast fashion, the way I would describe it, is these um, kind of big mall stores where you can buy the latest and greatest at amazing prices. So like H&M uh, maybe is an example? <laughs> Yeah, that might be an example, and I don't know exactly their story. Um, but a lot of these fast fashion retailers use um, human labor in a way that's maybe not ideal, uh, and that's why those items are so inexpensive and mm-hmm. inexpensive and and brand new. Mm. In Minneapolis, Tony's on the phone. Hi, Tony. On uh, 29th and Comor, just off of it, is the U of M uh, Reuse It store. Mm -hmm. And I was just there yesterday, and I bought a cover that I, a glass cover for one of my pans that I broke over a year ago. And it was a vented cover, and it only cost me $2. Oh, wow. So that was a a treasure you found. Yeah, they're giving away uh, the old wood. furniture like the chairs and tables uh uh they're oak uh um some of it is maple so if there's people who would like like to work with wood uh they're just giving that stuff away but when you go in there there's just thousands of items it's a big warehouse it's the u of m and um 29th and como you said it's a a reuse store yeah it's Mm -hmm. the reuse store um and Tony, uh, how did you come to uh, become uh, appreciative of, of thrifting? Oh, I uh, from time to time, I'll go to uh, uh, pick up lumber at uh, Habitat for Humanity. Then I heard about the one uh, uh, just down the way from the bindery. Uh, there was a uh, U of M bindery there that mm-hmm. repaired or made theses for students and uh I decided to look into it, and it's a big store. It's a big warehouse, and uh, they sell everything there. Thank you, Tony. Reminding us we can uh, buy more than than just clothes at at thrift shops for sure. Let's take another caller. In Minneapolis, we have Ann on the line. And Ann, what did you want to share with us about thrifting? Yeah, um, there was a culture at my daughter's uh, inner city high school. It was to be dressed uniquely, so a lot of the students shopped at um, thrift stores. And when she went to college here in um, the suburban area, she decided to kind of keep her style going instead of dressing like all the other kids because they dress more conventionally. And later on, some of these students became her friends, and they said, when when you first came to Amanda, we thought you were just way too cool for us. Um, so, so Sense of <laughs> style, yes. So what Anne is describing yeah. there, like that's the attraction for her daughter and her friends as they find unique things. Getting back to what uh, Jennifer and Molly, you're both describing about identity. And, and Molly, what can you say about that when, when folks come into Arcs Value Village? Are they expressing or are you seeing that they are looking for something that really reflects uh, who they are? 
Oh, absolutely. The identity is, um, it's, it's a thrifters, it's a thrifters thing. And uh, people who are really big into the Instagram love to have oh, sort of yeah. their identity displayed. And mm-hmm. you can get um, lots of different looks for a really good price and kind of show people how cool you are. And and what about, um, you know, we talked about thrift stores. There's a variety of them. One of the callers was talking about, you know, a place that has uh, lots of household items. Um, Molly, are your stores, are, are they nonprofits? Arks Valley That's Village. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Arks Valley Village is not for profit. And so, where do your profits go? What's going on? Yeah, thanks for asking. So, everything we do at our store is to raise money for the Arc Minnesota. Um, and Arc provides advocacy services for people with disabilities. And we also um, are working towards uh, racial justice and disability rights at the public policy and legislature level. And I know that you also, your shoppers, uh, you use your shoppers to, to to curate for you. Tell us about that, your, your pop-ups within your store. Oh, yeah. So we've been working on a villager pop-up series, which has been a lot of fun. And it's really to show the, the point that Arks Valley Village is really about the village. Um, it's, you know, all of our merchandise comes from the local area and it goes right back to the local area. So we've been having um, people do their own little pop-up shop in our store and they curate a collection and they sort of pick a theme and they shop it and they style a mannequin and, you know, set up the whole That's thing. Cool. And, and we invite everyone to come and shop this theme. And we've had all different things. So we've had um, plus size pop-up shop. We had a... <laughs> Um, non-binary person who was sort of exploring different options, pop-up shop, and um, just, you know, a wide variety. All are welcome, and we want to really portray that in our social media. And Molly, what happened with your business during the pandemic? Um, You know, when you were able to be open, what did you see in terms of people's buying habits or what they were were looking for? What they were looking for? Yeah, so the resellers, um, they remained constant, of course, because they are still trying to work their business. Um, And then other people did sort of take a pause, which um, I understand. And um, then as people started to reemerge again, it was all about, um, you know, different types of clothing. So we're we're all wearing... um, we're all wearing joggers on the bottom and then right. a not <laughs> joggers <laughs> on the not. bottom. That's, that's right. right. We were, we are. <laughs> that's right. And then business on the top. So people are looking for, for non iron um, shirts and blouses. Mm-hmm. Um, people, they don't need to wear the expensive, what I call costumes for the old business attire. Mm. People are reexamining that and they're, but they still want clothes. People still want new right. stuff, new to them stuff. And so people are just sort of reexamining what, what they're wearing wardrobe needs. And um, they're coming out, they're looking for new stuff. And we love it. And Jennifer, what have you noted uh, about the pandemic and what how that affected uh, thrift stores and, and, and the interest in thrifting? I think it's gone through a, a very rapid cycle that I've seen repeat throughout the 20th century and 21st century as well, which was at first it diminished in demand um, from, you know, what Molly was talking about there about how, you know, people just started staying away from the physical outlets. But then as many thrift stores or consignment shops or vintage stores, you know, all which have their own specialties, began to cotton on to a broader social media outlet It really exploded, of course, with things like Depop and outlets like that, more young people, especially than ever in measurable past, began to use it as an outlet 
of expression and cultivating those identities that we talked about. So Mm -hmm. overall, I think thrifting has exploded over the course of the pandemic, which was not what was predicted from a business perspective, um, say last June. Mm. All right, let's take another phone call before we uh, head off to a news break. I want to talk to Mary and Crystal, who's been waiting. Hi, Mary, what did you want to share with us about thrifting? Well, I kind of lived through the evolution of thrifting. Uh, I'm in my mid-80s, so that gives you a clue. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Seattle, and if you're familiar with the Pike Place Market, my mother went down with her lodge, and they always had these huge rummage sales down at the Pike Place Market before it had been modernized, of course. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with clothes from a rummage sale, thinking that was perfectly normal, so as I moved to Minnesota, uh, first I started out with rummage sales, and uh, there weren't thrift stores around in those days. Um, we Then the next thing was a consignment store near our mm-hmm. house, down on 42nd. I still wearing clothes. It was pretty upscale, and it was wonderful. A unique thrift store moved in by where I live. And that used to be a great place, but they really raised their prices, so I rarely go there anymore. (laughs) And And if I'm going to shop locally, I go to the New Hope Art because this is a specific thing. I needed a pair of regular straight black pants for a group I sing in. Mm -hmm. Do you think I could buy new ones at the store? No, they're all tight, so the only place you can buy clothes for old ladies is at a thrift store. Oh, well, Mary, you're not an old lady. You're a, uh, you're still thriving and, and doing your thrifting. Thank you, Mary and Crystal. And Molly, she had a, a shout out there for you there. She shops at the New Hope uh, Arks Value Village. She found those black pants she was looking for. I know, singing pants, no less. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> Here's a phone call from Eve in St. Michael. I am considering myself to be a champion thrifter, oh. consignment store shopper, and also just estate sale shopper. Um, the, my biggest score so far has been a $40 painting that I purchased that I actually had to rent a truck to bring home because it's uh, six feet by five feet and was appraised at more than $6,000. You paid $40 for that? Yeah, and I paid wow. more to rent a truck. <laughs> what does it look like? What does it show? It's an abstract painting that has... Um, really bright colors in it, and it, it's, it's just it's beautiful. It's got just vibrant lime greens and aqua blues and reds, and it's on a white background. It's acrylic paint. It's, it's just a wonderful painting, and, and it's, it's, the artist is still living, so I would expect that it would increase in value after he passes, though, and I'm not wishing him any any harm, but that's just the biggest thing I've mm-hmm. found. I've even found Halston dresses that were brand new with tags still on them that didn't fit me, so I could I could give them to somebody for ten dollars. So, wow. um, I mean, I I can't complain about anything. It's a wonderful thing to do on on my own. I don't have to bother anybody to ask them to go with me, and it's just fun. Mm-hmm. You're, you're sharing that uh, that spirit uh, of thrifting with everyone. Thank you, Eve and St. Michael. And Molly, what are you hearing her voice there? 
I hear absolute joy, <laughs> Eve. I'm so happy with you. And Angela, as you know, sometimes uh, the the news business is a little heavy mm-hmm. um, and necessary, uh, but thrifting is sort of like the anti-heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, people go and they find joy and they find Halston dresses and they find, uh, you know, truckloads of things that they need to then rent the truck to get it <laughs> to get it home. Um, it's so much fun. And it's something that um, I think Amazon does what Amazon does really well, but they can never do what we do, and it's um, it's the joy of thrifting, and you're touching the items, and you're you're seeing people around you, and you're sort of um, socializing at the same time. It's something that um, it's joyful, it's happy. Molly, tell us where some of the stuff comes from. She mentioned new items she found with price tags still on them, or the tags. Oh still on my them. gosh, where's where, <laughs> yes, where's we... the stuff coming from? <laughs> So have you ever uh, received maybe a gift and for whatever reason you Re-gifted, weren't going to keep it? it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, so we do receive things like that that people uh, receive and they don't know how to return it or sometimes mm-hmm. um, you've you've lost your receipt and it's just easier to just donate it with the rest of your stuff. Right. So we get brand new stuff with tags all the time from very generous donors. And a lot of your donors, uh, geographically, do they come from an area that's near your location? Is that common? Yes, they'll come from pretty close in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some of our shoppers will drive a little bit further because they know that we are the nonprofit thrift store. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, people are coming uh, from pretty close in the neighborhood. Let's take more phone calls as we talk about thrifting in Hopkins. Uh, Mara, who's on the phone? So when I was very young, my boyfriend proposed to me, and our families did not appreciate that. So we were on our own (laughs) for paying for the wedding and the wedding dress. Mm. So I started to go to stores, and I started to look around, and wedding dresses are so expensive. And everyone was a little bit rude and hoity-toity. I was a zestig young woman, and so I wasn't getting a lot of respect. Went to a consignment store, and the women there were so warm and so welcoming, and they pulled out a couple of wedding dresses that they had for $200 as opposed to $4,000. And I got the most amazing, beautiful wedding dress at this consignment shop. I got so many compliments on the day. It was just so beautiful and amazing and a great story to tell. Well, Mara, I have to ask you this. I mean, when we think about something as, as as special as a wedding dress, did you have thoughts about, well, who else wore this dress when you bought it and chose to wear it to your wedding? Here's what I imagined. I imagined that the woman who wore it before me had an amazing, wonderful wedding day full of love. And even if that wedding didn't lead to a great marriage, the wedding day itself mm. was powerful, and mm. it certainly didn't jinx us. We've been going on 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That's Mara and Hopkins. Jennifer, tell me about uh, a little bit about that. I mean, what in your research have you discovered about people's thoughts about who wore these items before they came to this thrift store? 
Yeah, I really think part of both the stigmatization and the cultural cachet of thrift shopping, especially with clothing, comes from this almost magical thinking about what is being transmitted through clothing. Um, clothing is one of the most intimate consumer items we ever purchase. You know, we wear it exactly on our bodies. So some people are a little skeeved out by the idea that somebody else had this fabric, you know, brushing up against them. But other people find this inspiring. Inspirational, you know, my, my book recounts sort of a history in the LGBT, LGBTQIA community um, um, in the power in reclaiming a queer identity and sort of crossing genres to look for clothing. Because that's another thing about thrift stores is oftentimes it's a lot easier to go from the men's section to the women's section. Those boundaries mm -hmm. aren't quite as, you know, marked as they are in a department store. And there's not the oversight to sort of catch you out, especially like in the 50s and 60s when it was illegal to wear clothing, quote unquote, belonging to the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. So there was something historically freeing about the boundlessness and the variety available for people of, you know, many marginalized categories. Let's go back to the phones as we talk about thrifting, its popularity today and its history in uh, Golden Valley. Anne is on the phone. Hi, Anne. Hi. Boy, are you on a fun topic. Uh, I'm trying. I'm listening. learning a lot, too. <laughs> wow. I mean, I have so many things I could add to what you've already said, but they're just, I'll do it quickly. There's The stigma is not bad. It's almost flipped mm -hmm. to, you know, it's fun and it's mm -hmm. affordable and at school, we talk about, oh, where'd you get that outfit and this and that. And my daughter at work had to get some more dressy clothes to work in an office. And it's just there are many, many treasures. And it's a good program to donate to and to purchase. And, and do, do you the, donate to thrift stores? What types of things have you donated in the past? Oh, everything. Household clothing. I mean, I have a huge list I have to write details on for do taxes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, I do too but often, right. Oh, I also wanted to say we have, st I w was a special ed teacher and we had student workers who would come there to do um, shifts to help sort and hang things up. And so it really provides an opportunity. This would be at the New Hope Valley Village right. that they have opportunities to learn job skills as well. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. Thank you. That's Anne in Golden Valley. Let's take another phone call as we talk about thrifting in Minneapolis. Josiah is on the phone. Good morning to you. Good morning. Hi. Do you like to th go thrift shopping? Uh, oh, absolutely. I uh, I was just on vacation, and that's one of my favorite things to do when I travel is to go visit local thrift shops. And on vacation, why the appeal then? Because you've got more time, or what's that about? Well, partially it's because I've got more time, but it's also new stuff and a mm -hmm. new place. And I feel, I feel like it's a good way to get to know an area, too, just to see what people are mm -hmm. are giving away. It kind of tells you a little bit of uh, who they are, what their house is filled with. Uh, and I, it's also a great way. Often I'll be – I like to go out in the wilderness. And so you can – with people who live out in the wilderness have a, some hearty stuff. Right. So tell me, um, uh, Josiah, what kinds of things have you bought in thrift shops that are, are special or unique to you? Yeah, I I love to buy, uh, like I said, um, the more rugged gear, pants especially. I feel like I blow through pants all the time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one time up in uh, Grand Marais, there was a small church thrift store. I think it was, it, 
it was basically somebody's house that they converted into a little thrift store. Uh, and in the back, in the way back, there was a set of uh, plastic drawers, and one of them was labeled Dickies. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Dickies, but the little, mm-hmm. the little fake uh, uh, turtleneck that you would wear under a shirt. And I thought those things just didn't even exist anymore. But if you want one, there's a whole drawer of them up in Grand Marais. Like the, the faux turtleneck? It doesn't fully roll down? I know what you're talking about. You just got to warm up your neck. You don't uh-huh. want to warm up your core too much, but your neck's cold. Right, right. All right. Thank you, uh, Josiah. Uh, Jennifer, uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about the history of thrifting. And so, you know, a lot of people are familiar with um, Salvation Army and Goodwill. What, what do we know about, like, for example, with Salvation Army when they started opening up their uh, thrift stores? Well, that was in the late 19th century in the U.S. It really originated in England, um, but when they came over here. What I love about the Salvation Army story is it really illustrates that um, secondhand shopping breaks down all the categories that especially historians tend to artificially divide like production and consumption and buyers and sellers. So the first generation of um, Salvation Army workers and leaders, there was the general Evangeline Booth. They had this sort of uh, paramilitary structure that's a little less pronounced today, but she was the general of the American Salvation Army. And she performed on Carnegie Hall stage in 1906, dressed as a slum sister who was their troop of Salvationists who would go into inner cities and try to help people. And they would use their products, their thrift store products, which weren't called thrift stores yet. They were called social service stores until about the 1920s. But they would use their secondhand donations to dress down and to sort of perform the charitable duties that they do. So I love that they used both the creative, illustrative, performative side of thrift and also the profitable and, well, evangelizing uh, benefits as they saw it uh, from from the onset. And Jennifer, wasn't there a time when people did not donate you didn't give away your clothes because they were so hard to come by and and was there a point in history when you know when factories began mass producing clothing and then it became easier to give things away because you could buy new stuff easier Absolutely. The the story of this in the late 19th and early 20th century has a lot to do with large scale production and the fact that now middling class or middle class people could afford to buy a whole new wardrobe. 1880s, if you were a mom, you would wear a dress until it broke down and then make it into a pinafore for your daughter and then tear it up to stuff in the furniture. That's right. (laughs) Right. But because um, you could afford new things, And because of that germ theory, it became more acceptable and even required. And it's really interesting to me that it was in the 1920s when manufacturing and mass production really took off, especially with clothing. Ready-made clothing was a thing. Women especially were later to adapt to ready-made clothing, to not getting your stuff tailored or made at home. Um, in the 1920s is when Salvation Army and Goodwill start calling it a thrift store. And this was to kind of assuage the more well-to-do donors, right? You are not, you're still being thrifty. You are helping other people. You're paying it forward. Mm -hmm. And now you get to go shopping for new stuff, even though your clothes are still technically good and wearable by donating it, you're doing good. And you also get to have an update to your wardrobe. Let's take more phone calls as we talk about uh, thrift shops, the history of it, the popularity of thrifting in Woodbury. Jean's on the phone. Jean, what did you want to share with us? 
Yes, hi. It's funny. Uh, right now I'm wandering the uh, racks of uh, savers in Woodbury. Um, All right. <laughs> I, stop, I stop in somewhere, be it a, an estate sale or a consignment store, thrift store, every day. And what I do and have done for years, I uh, have an online shoe boutique, and I, I, I know my brands, and it's amazing certain thrift stores, women will wear their shoes once or twice, decide they're not comfortable, mm-hmm. and just donate them. Right. Well, I'll clean them up and resell them uh, on eBay. Uh, and then I also, uh, certain items I will flip on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. Or in the winter, I'll, I have room I can save uh, items, so larger items like toboggans, larger children's uh, wooden uh, Furniture, toys, uh, medical equipment. Uh, there is mm-hmm. a secondhand owner for everything, and all I have to do is find it, clean it up a little bit, in, in you know, oftentimes. And then uh, my daughters are always asking me to keep an eye out for this or that because I need this or that. And, and I'll take a picture and I'll say, well, do you want this? And they'll say, yeah, buy it. <laughs> so I... I and I used to be a contract buyer for their friends, well, for their friends' mothers. I'd find all kinds of athletic shoes for them when they were young and poor. And so, Jean, just, you're the kind um, of friend we all need shopping for us. I appreciate that. Well, I'm always buying for other people. Uh-huh. All right. Well, uh, I have a question for you, uh, Molly, there at Arcs Value Village. Um, I'm, I'm curious about how uh, you all have been using social media. Uh, I follow you guys on Instagram. And I'm always impressed by the videos that you have uh, showing people demonstrating, you know, what, what they purchase, you know, modeling clothes. And, and, and how does uh, social media uh, factor into your strategy and trying to bring, you know, people into your stores? Yeah, thanks. So we use social media in a few different ways. One is to show the mission of who it is that we directly support. So people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, We also have been using for the past year our social media as a tool for good and to promote other businesses, specifically black business in the local neighborhood, um, get people excited about something that they didn't maybe know was there before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for our business, we use it to kind of get people excited about maybe something new that just came in. Uh, you better come get it now. Um, right. We use it to show off our free personal shopper service, um, which, Jean, maybe you want to apply for <laughs> a job with our personal shopper service. Tell me about that. Um, I walk into the store and someone can help me shop? Yeah. So you would want to book an appointment um, and then our stylist will shop the store and curate a whole closet full, you know, about 100 pieces of clothing, jewelry and accessories and shoes. And you'll get to try it all on and see what you like and get a professional consultation on on what they think might work for what you're looking for. And then um, you can buy what you want and don't buy what you don't want. Uh, We also offer it virtually for people who maybe want to do this from the comfort of their home and we'll ship wow. it to you. Wow. Yeah. But you need to make an appointment uh, with Arts Value Village to do that. That's right. And it's, right. A, it's a free service. Oh, let's take uh, another phone call before we run out of time as we talk about thrifting in St. Paul. Jessica is on the phone. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Angela. Um, when I was little, my mom shopped at thrift stores because we were poor and I was always afraid of what my classmates would think of me if they found out I was wearing secondhand clothes. Right. But it's kind of funny because now it's come full circle because mm-hmm. I purposely avoid buying things brand new if I can. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people realize that they're actually slowing down global warming with every piece of secondhand clothing they buy. Um, if I recall correctly, when I watched Al Gore's documentary, 
many years ago in Inconvenient Truth, they said in there that the clothing industry is one of the top contributors to global warming. Wow. So thrifting is environmentally friendly as well. Thank you. That's Jessica in St. Paul. Thank you for raising that point. And, And Jennifer, anything you can add to that? Uh, Well, I think it's pretty complicated because I totally agree. And that was always major impetus for me. But I think you got to be careful if that is your value for doing it, that you don't get addicted to the novelty of it. Mm -hmm. Because truth be told, we have such a problem with firsthand manufacturing of clothing, literal tons of clothing still gets thrown into landfills. And Mm -hmm. if you really love to shop secondhand, you're still part of that whole consumer cycle, albeit a less direct part. So So I I totally agree, but I also think in order to be fully embrace that kind of environmental reduce mindset, you also um, need to be okay with wearing the same thing a dozen times, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than always being, I have a new thing all the time because then you're socially perpetuating novelty and hyper-consumption. Our time is up for today. You've been listening back to a conversation I had last year about the past, present, and future of thrifting. My guests were Jennifer Lazat. She wrote the book From Goodwill to Grunge and teaches at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. And I also spoke with Molly King, the marketing manager of ARC's Value Village stores, three locations around the Twin Cities metro area. They're in Richfield, Bloomington, and New Hope. This conversation was produced by Susan Davis. Be safe, everybody. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning at 9.